Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Erica Minahan is the founding partner at Rain Ventures and 1000 Angels. She typically invests in companies raising seed and Series A rounds and focuses primarily on the technology sector, although open to many opportunities with exceptional risk-adjusted return potential. I first met Erica at the Kairos conference four years ago and was just really impressed with how she carried herself and her ambition and just, you know, everything that she represented we have stayed in touch over the last few years and just really enjoyed what she's been up to and how she's been building out uh, her investments and uh, excited for you to listen to this episode today. It's definitely a good one with great perspective. Erica, welcome to the One Away Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you here and uh, learn more about you and, and share that with our audience. Uh, Erica, if you don't mind me will you share your one away moment with us today that uh you want to highlight yeah so you know i think uh if if i look back on my career um probably the one away moment for me was uh back in 2006 i was on maternity leave with my uh youngest uh my daughter and I was seriously considering uh, making a move away from investment banking towards something, you know, that I think was a little bit more fulfilling, um, something that I think, you know, could potentially have a more positive impact on society. And uh, I was on uh, the Columbia Business School alumni job board searching around for things that I could possibly do. And I found an opportunity for a 20 hour week internship uh, with a woman who was starting a brand new organization called Golden Seeds uh, that was looking to invest in female founders, uh, which was a really novel idea at the time. And I decided, you know what, I'll throw my hat in the ring, uh, give it a shot. And, uh, 15 years later, I'm now uh, running my own venture fund. So. So neat uh, that you were kind of at that point of your life and bringing your daughter into the world and really questioning, I think, what was next for you on, on that path. I want to, I want to back up a bit, Erica. Uh, so you seems like from a younger age or, or you had an early interest in finance or investing uh but you didn't quite know how to take that and maybe wrap something more meaningful around it that was more aligned. Where where did that interest in finance or that desire to be involved in, in that field come from initially? Yeah, sure. Well, I've spent my entire 23-year career in finance. Um, I suppose it actually came from a really interesting moment, which could also be considered another one-away moment um, when I was in college. 
Uh, my mom is actually a physician. And uh, when I was in college, I believed that I was also going to go to medical school and become a doctor. Um, and as part of preparing for medical school, you know, I was a microbiology and molecular genetics major. So, you know, you're studying the course material, uh, but you also generally should get some experience actually working in a hospital. Hmm. So when I was an undergrad at UCLA, I actually had a job, a 24 hour a week job working as a unit service coordinator on the cardiothoracic transplant unit at the UCLA Medical Center. So that's where they do all the heart and lung transplants. And as the unit service coordinator, I was able to develop relationships with all of the surgeons um, that actually did the transplants. And they knew that I was you know, a student at UCLA that was thinking about going to medical school and uh, would let me, you know, advise me on my journey and sometimes let me sit in on procedures um, to observe. And it was during that time that I realized um, I actually really don't like blood and I don't like standing under fluorescent lights for a long period of time. And a few of the surgeons actually told me, you know, Erica, you've got a great personality, you know, you're a really smart person, you'd actually probably be much more successful in the business world, um, and a lot happier than doing this, like really horrible jobs. So I actually took their advice. Um, and the night before uh, school started my senior year, I switched my major from uh, micro and molecular genetics to business economics and dove right into that world and, you know, immediately found an incredible passion for it. Um, I was really lucky that one of my professors um, at UCLA actually uh, in the subject of accounting was like a really charismatic, awesome guy. It seems like the sort of subject that would actually be really boring, but in fact, um, it was really pretty um, you know, exciting and fun to learn. And I, I really developed a passion for it. And from there, I ended up, um, you know, pursuing a career in investment banking, moving to New York, um, and, you know, becoming uh, a person, you know, a, a figure in the finance world. So. Love it. Wow. Wow. That is the story uh, from medicine and working in hospitals to numbers and finance and investing. Uh, well, growing up, I mean, in in college, right, when you made that switch, did you have to take more time in school or, or was it something that uh, you were able to finish your degree in, in the same amount of time? I mean, that's a, that seems like a very fast switch. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I was somewhat fortunate. I actually graduated from high school when I was 16. So I had always planned to probably attend college for five years just so that I wouldn't graduate, you know, before I was 21. Um, so I did end up, you know, completing my biz econ degree in two years. And so I was, you know, at UCLA for a total of five years, but it was kind of something I had always planned because I didn't, you know, think kind of going out into the world and starting a full-time job when I was under 21 was a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good for you for making that switch and not just following the say, the norm and the path that you were on uh, to find something uh, more meaningful. And then another question I had for you uh, was, you, you talked about that professor, right? Who I think educators are so important and 
he instilled and really fascinated you with uh, the field of investing, finance, economics, you know. Yeah, he was actually an accounting professor, which accounting. usually people think is the driest subject, but right. he somehow made it really fun. <laughs> right. Take, take us to that moment, right? Because it's clearly kind of has pushed and propelled you. What was it about the teacher, the class that you maybe saw yourself embarking down that field? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm kind of a, a person who is um, somewhat detail oriented. And, you know, I, I sort of like things that require attention to detail. Um, and accounting is actually one of those things, um, you know, for people who I don't really know the right word for it. But, you know, for example, I really love, you know, building and auditing financial models. Not everybody loves that stuff. And one of the things that was kind of interesting, I think it might have had something to do with the fact that, you know, it was LA, um, a couple of things there. So one is that actually um, in LA at the time, this is like the late 90s, the accounting industry there was like pretty big. And, um, you know, from a finance perspective, that was sort of where all the jobs were. Um, and these were considered like really cool, well-paying jobs. Um, and then from the second perspective, for some reason, I don't know, the professor would have, you know, at UCLA, your classes are not 30 people, they're like 300 people. So you'd be in this like big auditorium and, you know, the professors, if they were good, were kind of like these, you know, rock stars almost like Hollywood style showman. So I think this teacher just really nailed it. Um, in fact, I believe he still teaches there because I was interviewing a founder just a couple of days ago who was also a, a UCLA alum who'd studied business economics, the same degree I studied. And she was talking about how she had, she had him also as a professor and he was really great. So I was really lucky, you know, to have a teacher that really inspired me um, in the path that I was going down. Um, and I was also really fortunate to have just sort of randomly um, had an opportunity to actually get a job in New York City in investment banking out of undergrad. I mean, UCLA is a very large school, um, I think like 30,000 students. And, you know, when you're applying for a job in investment banking in New York, I think they hired two people out of our class. So it was really competitive. Um, but I was really fortunate just to, you know, get the opportunity um, and go down that path. But I will tell everybody listening, you know, one of the things to remember is that you've probably seen the articles recently about Goldman and how, you know, they're not allowed to make their uh, analysts work a certain amount. I mean, basically, back then being in an analyst program was tantamount to indentured servitude. You know, you went in there and you were working around the clock. You know, you would get into work at like 8.30 in the morning. And if your boss let you leave at midnight, you know, that was considered like a really nice boss who cared about your, your well-being. You know, it was definitely weekends. So, um, you know, it's a great opportunity, but it was also um, a really, really rigorous training program, not only in the subject matter, but in how to work really hard and diligently. Mm. Wow. Uh, yeah, I bet that you, you were thrown into a world that, you know, you weren't expecting, or maybe you were expecting, but, you know. In oh, I, you were 100% expecting Okay. It. That was that was definitely the expectation. Got it. Okay, so it was something that you 
you were saying like, and actually it was going. pretty funny because i know that part of the part of the reason that i got the job was because i mentioned that when i was in school i actually had a you know 60 percent hours a week of full-time right a 24-hour week job mm. working on the cardiothoracic surgery unit which is you know i mean if you're working in a hospital where they're doing heart and lung transplants like that's actually like a pretty serious level position that you're responsible for. And so my hours were actually every Saturday and Sunday night from 7pm to 7am. So I think like knowing that I had, you know, sort of proven that I could do that kind of work, like while maintaining, you know, a full um, school schedule was part of the reason why they were like, okay, you'll probably be able to also handle being an investment banking. Well, by, but by your early 20s, you, you put yourself in two ri- very rigorous environments and, and clearly figured out how to navigate the storm and, and, and survive. So I, I can see why you maybe had a little confidence going into the investment banking side of the world and figuring out how to thrive there. Yeah. Now you, you worked in um, how long? So before I ask this question, how long were you in investment banking? As we go back to that one away moment, how long were you in investment banking before you made you know a switch? Yeah. So I was in investment banking for eight years, um, spent two years in corporate finance, um, right? And then two years in asset management. So I was in corporate finance at Solomon Smith Barney, which is, you know, became Citigroup during the years that I was there. Uh, Two years in asset management at Credit Suisse First Boston, two years doing my MBA, um, during which time I also worked at, you know, some asset management firms, um, and then two years in, um, uh, as a fixed income trader trading asset backed securities. And so it was in 2006 that I actually pivoted into early stage venture where I think I really found my fit um, outside of, you know, public market banking, um, more on the buy side, but, you know, at the very early stage. And I've been in that role pretty much ever since. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like it, was, it built a maybe good foundation and a lens for you uh, to learn from, build relationships, uh, and probably, I'm sure they still impact you to this day. Um, but I'm curious about, for you, maybe the things that you learned, right, about yourself, kind of maybe personally, professionally, the, the kind of some of those hard-earned lessons, maybe for those eight years in, in the corporate finance world, like, what were some of the things that you think those years instilled in you as you were able to make this pivot uh, more into something for, uh, you know, a career that's more fulfilling today? So for me, the most important things that I learned is I had a, an opportunity to learn a lot about a variety of different asset classes, um, which I think is a really good sort of baseline to have for anybody who, you know, has a career in finance. So to really sort of deeply understand, um, different parts of the capital structure. So, you know, from that perspective, that was really valuable. I think the other thing that I learned is, you know, and I probably like the vast majority of people that I personally don't love being in like a big corporation environment. Um, (laughs) I think most people don't necessarily love, you know, being in a a massive corporation, you know, like a Citigroup or a Credit Suisse. Um, You know, there are some challenges there just having to deal with, you know, so many different people and so many different levels of bureaucracy in your role. Um, can be a little bit more challenging. Um, And, you know, for me, I think why I really kind of found my place in early stage venture is that I 
preferred to be much closer to sort of the actual asset and what we were building, right? So, you know, when you're doing corporate finance and you're like taking a company public or you're doing a debt offering, it's very much just sort of like about the numbers, the historical financials, the cash flow, you know, the debt to equity ratios, you know, all the, you know, interest coverage ratios. Whereas when you're investing in an early stage company, you know, it's very much about the people, the ideas, the opportunity, the potential, um, which is not only a lot more interesting and exciting, um, but you really feel like you're more part of building something mm -hmm. rather than figuring out how to extract value from something that already exists. Mm -hmm. So in corporate finance, in asset management, and even as a trader, what we were doing was taking existing things of value, right? And existing areas of cash flow and sort of figuring out how to extract as much as we possibly could from, from them using, you know, different methods of financial engineering. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, that didn't feel like a very creative place to be in the world. It felt potentially more destructive. Mm -hmm. um, not that I have anything against bankers. You know, my husband's been an investment banker for I don't know, probably like 30 years now. Um, so, you know, they, they can be cool people. But for me, there was a lot more creative opportunity being part of the financing life cycle at the early stage. And I felt like I could have a lot more impact uh, in a positive way in that role. Absolutely. And I really love what you said about being closer to the asset. Uh, it was kind of stuck out, right? And being closer to what's being built on the ground floor. Uh, to see the potential in something. So tell us, you know, you 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 got that intern. The internship was with a firm that was doing early stage venture. Is that correct? The twenty. The yeah. So uh, my first job in venture was as executive director of an organization called Golden Seeds. So Golden Seeds was the very first. Um, gender lens investing organization here on the East Coast. Um, it's now one of the largest angel networks in the world. And they also have like some funds that go along with their angel investor network. Um, you know, when the woman was first starting it, I mean, you know, I, I was one of her first hires, you know, she had just posted for a part-time intern. Um, and then after I was there for about six weeks, she ended up hiring me as executive director. So, you know, it was kind of, I didn't realize that it was going to be an opportunity for a bigger role. Um, but, you know, I started off just part-time kind of, you know, as an intern um, and then, you know, quickly was able to move into a more substantial role there as she was building the company. Totally. That must've been a really neat experience for you to see something being built, maybe more on the ground floor and understanding what it was like to build it internally to feed a passion to go help other companies build. I mean, is that is that what I'm hearing that you were really able to kind of see an organization be built at the forefront of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what I do like all the time now. So I guess to me, it doesn't really seem like a particularly, you know, like, oh my gosh, I had the opportunity to see this. But, um, you know, probably it was a little bit more interesting there because um, angel investor networks are, member-driven organizations they're not really built as companies so learning seeing how an organization like that grows um 
was definitely a really interesting learning experience for me. And I did learn a lot about how to um, launch and manage those types of businesses. So, you know, as you know, since I was at Golden Seeds, I've actually uh, started two other angel investor networks, um, one called Star Angel Network that was a uh, angel investor network for professional athletes and influencers. And then another one called A Thousand Angels, which I still run, which is a digital only angel investor network. So um, I think it's such a unique sort of entity because it doesn't really operate in the same way, you know, that a traditional business does. Um, you know, it's more of like a co-op business model because it kind of exists for the benefit of its members rather than for the benefit of some corporate owner. Absolutely. I mean, I on that note, I think, could you maybe explain, you know, for the audience listening, the, how it is structured and, and maybe how it is set up and how you recruit other angels into it. And, you know, we'd love to hear how you find deal flow, right. To invest into, you know, tell us, you know, the exciting parts about building the network and, and then finding the companies that you're able to help fund. Yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> I think that um, one of the things, you know, that is really interesting about folks getting involved as angel investors is that it is um, a way to, you know, for relatively high net worth individuals to have um, more of an impact on the business world than they would through just sort of a traditional public market, you know, ETF portfolio. Um, so it can be an interesting complement um, to your portfolio, maybe like five, max 10% of your overall investable assets um, to put into these uh, high risk yet potentially very high reward um, investments. The other benefit is that, you know, not only is there the financial return, um, but it can really provide uh, an opportunity for you to grow and learn in subject areas of business where you might not necessarily get exposure to what's going on in the cutting edge. So it's kind of a combination of an interesting financial investment with the upside of some participation. Um, you know, similarly to the way that if you decided to add, you know, a, a Airbnb property to your investment portfolio, you know, you're, you have to go out and, you know, understand the neighborhood, find the house, you know, decorate it, like really sort of engage in the process of generating that cash flow. Sure. For some people, you know, doing these sort of early stage investments can be similar. Um, We've, you know, I, I started a thousand angels five years ago um, as a platform that could provide more of a venture capital style approach to making angel investments and really sort of like separating the social club aspect of it from the investment aspect. So all angel groups are different, but the vast majority of them historically have been fund have been founded based on some sort of like affinity group type thesis. Mm. So, for example, with Golden Seeds, it was um, founded on the idea of investing in women-led startups, mm. but it was also started with the idea of somewhat of kind of a regional economic development model. 
And so most angel investor groups historically are based on some sort of a regional economic development model. So that's why it's like, you know, Houston Angel Network, Miami Angels, you know, Cincinnati, whatever like city they're in, they're usually set up to actually invest in companies in that area. So that's one way that they can be formed. And the second motivation, particularly for those sort of groups, is that people join them, you know, because they're looking to develop their networks with other folks, you know, who uh, are potentially investing. Mm -hmm. For me, what I noticed is one of the caveats there is that sometimes you would get people joining who were joining more for what they perceived could be the positive social externalities of being members of such a group. And the downside there is that very often founders have a not great experience because they're being treated more as like product for the entertainment of these members, for members to show off, you know, their knowledge rather than, you know, serious candidates for financial investment. And I'm not saying that like, none of these founders have ever raised money with these groups because they have, but just one of the downsides of these groups is that there was a certain motivation to kind of, you know, provide investment product as a more kind of social entertainment type vehicle, um, which is not great for founders. So I actually started a thousand angels with the motivation to do a couple things. Number one, to take more of a venture capital driven approach to investment selection. So we don't select deals based on, oh, look, we're all here in, you know, Tampa and we want to support Tampa companies. No, it's like, what are the best investment opportunities nationally um, that we can add to our portfolio? Number two, the members don't know each other, right? It's a digital only network. So when you join, you're joining purely for the motivation of actually building a portfolio. You're not there to like rub shoulders with other people and other people aren't, you know, coming after you like for things because they've now identified you as a high net worth person. So we operate little, a little bit more in a way to provide our portfolio companies a really streamlined digital only experience to get in front of a wide array of investors who are just serious about adding high growth um, technology startup assets to a well-diversified portfolio of early stage venture capital equity. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a little bit about how we're different. Um, but, you know, every group has its own secret sauce, you know, its own benefits for members um, and its own approach to how um, it wants to operate in the world. And so, you know, there are angel groups that are right for a variety of different people. And I certainly think that, you know, they're for, for like local, you know, in-person um, community-driven angel groups that are maybe, you know, trying to invest in life sciences or maybe, you know, want to fund more minority founders or maybe, you know, are whatever their theme is. Um, the theme idea, you know, can be cool, um, but not always for everybody. So. And, and with that, it seems to be that the, the investors that you're attracting probably are more serious about the deal flow and more, I mean, more serious about making investments and really finding good opportunities opposed to the social aspect. So would it be, before I ask my next question, like, would, would it be fair to say that um, 
there may be more of like a serious type of investor who's really, really cares about the deals. Is that kind of the type you're trying to attract? Yeah. So, you know, 1000 Angels is designed purely right. for people who already have friends, already have a life. They're not looking for something <laughs> to entertain them or do or build their social network. They're purely looking to build a portfolio of quality investment assets. Got it. And it's just the same way, you know, if you want to buy an ETF, you don't have to join some club and, right. and make friends with a bunch of people. You just buy the ETF. So. Oh. We're kind of like providing a similar product, which is early stage investing sort of minus, you know, a lot of the nonsense, but yeah. for, there, there's certainly some value to some of, you know, what I'm kind of describing as the nonsense in certain situations, totally. you know, that makes sense for some folks, but we provide an alternative to that. Well, um, so, 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 you know, I started a thousand angels five years ago. Um, you know, last year we actually launched our fund, which is called rain ventures. Um, so I run a $50 million fund that is investing in similar asset class. So early stage venture, we generally, um, start with companies when they're raising their first one to $3 million. Um, our initial checks are anywhere from kind of half a million to a million with follow-on capital of up to three million into subsequent rounds. So we've been able to take that sort of really successful investing model um, and bring it to the market at scale um, by raising a fund. Hmm. Got it. So uh, it's just to clarify for, for audience and, and you know, this conversation here as well, is Rain Ventures an extension of 1000 Angels or is it a completely separate entity in the way it invests? Yeah, so it's a completely separate entity, um, but you know the kind of investment thesis that we've proven out through our 1000 Angels deal definitely carries over to our investing style at Rain Ventures. Um, my partner there, Monique Mosley and I actually started investing together about nine years ago. Um, so over the course of time, we've made investments using personal capital, as well as capital that we've brought into rounds through our 1000, the 1000 Angels Network, as well as through other SPVs that we've put together. Um, and so that was really sort of the foundation that we were able to use to establish a robust track record uh, to successfully raise our fund. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And I think a really uh, interesting model, you know, taking that talking, knowing other investors and talking to them, it seems that, that track record early allows them to go and raise bigger funds uh, on their own. Yeah. Uh, seems like you took a very similar approach. Now, on one side, I think it's about creating, you know, finding the capital, getting people to invest in your fund or finding, you know, using your own money to do that. The other side is, you know, finding the deals and, and creating that pipeline of, you know, deal flow to invest into. Uh, what have you and Monique and you and you know, other investment partners, you know, what have you been able to find as a way to find the deals you're looking for and really build out, um, you know, opportunities to, to invest into? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our fund thesis is a, really about the opportunity um, uh, presented to, to generate alpha by investing in underrepresented founders in early rounds. So that's really kind of where we have a lens as far as investing. Um, how we cultivate our deal flow is really based on, you know, the fact that between the two of us, we have 
25 years of venture capital investing experience and, you know, have been in this ecosystem for a really long time. Um, you know, even Brian, I've known you for probably, I don't know, five or six years, right? So, you know, we, we've really taken um, a uh, very dedicated approach to, you know, being part of the startup community, um, to, you know, contributing our time as mentors, judges for Startup of the Year, judges for 43 North. Um, judges for, you know, various TechCrunch events, um, mentors for a whole bunch of different programs, you know, running tons of kind of accelerators and other mentorship programs um, to really kind of be on the ground building relationships with portfolio companies that might be potential investments. So our deal flow strategy is really relationship driven and, you know, about kind of getting to know people. Uh, before we make an investment, um, but also kind of being in the right place at the right time when they are seeing traction and ready to raise around. Um, so for our fund, it's, you know, my partner and myself, um, we also have two amazing venture partners, um, one of whom is a uh, VP of consumer tech at Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, she sees like every new consumer tech company that's starting a bank account. Um, and then the other is uh, a longtime professor of digital marketing at Columbia Business School, NYU and Cornell Tech's program here in New York. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of feet on the ground as far as, you know, identifying um, really phenomenal potential candidates and building those relationships. Uh, we, of course, also, you know, have invested a lot of time and energy into relationships with um, other, you know, venture firms um, that come in, you know, maybe Series A um, that we've co-invested with, as well as growth equity firms, you know, that support our companies at Series B and later stages. Got it. Wow. Seems like you really... And place a lot of time and effort. One, a long-term approach, a lot of strategic channels and people who see deal flow, uh, and then just really getting to invest in the founder community. And I, I'd agree when you kind of create that community for yourself, you know, the inbound, the the your top of mind very much because you've established a strong connection with somebody, uh, and, and they think of you. Uh, so it's really neat that you've done that. Uh, I think in the fashion you have and taking, I think a very long-term and kind of healthy approach to not rushing, you know, success. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think for investors, word of mouth, you know, just like for any startup company, I mean, word of mouth is your best source of, you know, customer referrals. <laughs> and, you know, we're really lucky that our portfolio company founders, um, you know, are our biggest evangelists and make a lot of high quality introductions for us yeah absolutely no that's so important and i mean as you're talking i wrote down two names actually i thought who came to mind who would be good people maybe for you to invest alongside of um so it's uh it seems like you really kind of create those connections well and and you know establish that i'm sure you do the same for others uh something that erica is a theme here with golden seeds and uh, what you have done now and on your fund thesis uh, is, is the underrepresented founders, right? And, you know, Golden Seeds, it was, I think, more woman-led um, um, investments. Uh, where, you know, right now, I think in, in a time where 
the, the world, you know, and especially in America, that our awareness has been raised to so much. And you've seen a lot of, you know, people taking on this fight to help underrepresented founders, but this has been going on for hundreds of years, centuries. Um, where do you right now in tech and investing in, in the startup ecosystem specifically see opportunities for underrepresented um, underrepresented founders to really have the most impact in, in industries to innovate within? How, how are you thinking about that and approaching um, founders when you meet them? Yeah, sure. Well, we invest in consumer tech and software um, just because those are, you know, the sectors where we have the most experience and feel that we can bring the most value to our portfolio companies. Um, I would say, you know, there's opportunity for uh, female founders and founders of color to innovate, you know, in whatever industries they specifically are in. So we don't, you know, we, we don't, tell founders like what to do or what to create that's their job um you know our number one criteria for investment is founder market fit so you know why are you that team that's ideally suited to execute um but you know certainly when we make investments we're generally investing you know a lot of times in a sector that has like solutions created have been dominated by one traditional approach and having a different perspective can potentially create value. So a great example of that um, is a company called Solo Funds that we invested in. Um, We made our first investment in the company in like 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's one of the fastest growing FinTech companies Um, It was really simple, you know, it was like two amazingly talented African American men had an idea. Well, actually, it was the idea of one of them, he brought on the other one to be CEO. But, you know, saw a really simple problem in the black community, which is that people needed sometimes emergency loans, right? It was really hard to get a couple hundred dollars um, if you needed it (laughs) and could they create you know a platform that would allow people um, to fulfill this role and and make loans to each other um, in a really sort of like seamless and structured way Um, so it was kind of like a a big vision type of product um, somewhat complex to execute but you know they were a team that was uniquely just suited to execute it um, and so now they have solo funds, which is a peer-to-peer lending marketplace, um, which I would encourage people to check out because it's pretty amazing. It's like, you know, if you need to borrow money in a bind, um, you can go on there. You say, you know, I need to borrow $100, $200, but you also set what you're willing to pay for it. Um, so it's up to you. You know, you can say, okay. You know, if somebody lends me a hundred bucks, I'll pay you, you know, I'll, I'll give you a $9 tip, right? So it's totally up to you what you want to set your tip as. Obviously, like the more attractive the tip, like the more likely that your loan is to get funded. So it's kind of like Priceline, right? You're like walking that fine line between, you know, I definitely want somebody to make the loan to me, but I also want to like minimize how much I'm paying for it, um, which is pretty cool. Um, but also for just individuals who have some extra money, they can go on the platform and they're actually the ones that fund the loans. Mm. So 
you can make, you know, a 30 day loan of a hundred dollars and, you know, earn a $5 tip on that. It's really, really difficult to figure out how to deploy sort of smaller size investments into the financial markets and actually generate, you know, a return of like two to 5% per month. Right. So um, it's a really great opportunity on both sides and it's disintermediating predatory short-term lenders in a really successful way. So, you know, that was a really great product because their unique perspective on the market, like actually being part of the community that uses these loans, they were able to innovate technology that worked better, was cheaper for everybody and created a lot more value on all sides. Um, You know, we have another company um, that we're going to be leading an investment in this year called Coco and Breezy, which is one of the, uh, actually the first black owned eyewear brand. And, you know, they're not only innovating like really fashion forward eyewear, but, you know, one of the things that a lot of folks have not been aware of in the past is that people of color have different face shapes and need like a different design of glasses to be able to comfortably wear them. And, you know, there were no brands in the market that were even like considering this fact, right? Even though it's a huge part of the consumer population. So they're in there you know, doing an awesome eyewear brand, but with a perspective that's more inclusive and that they're able to capture value from. So, you know, when I think about a lot of our, you know, our portfolio companies, um, I can describe with each of them how their position as a founder that has a different and unique perspective is helping them better address a market opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the eyewear line that you're talking about, you know, I have some friends, uh, you know, I grew up with someone who was um, Black who we brought in and lived with us for five or six years. And, and that was, I just remember him, him getting glasses. Like that was a struggle. I mean, I didn't realize that the, the market size, that was everyone, but I mean, I can just see that. And then as you're describing the fund um, or solo funds to make, I mean, it, it's, it feels very evocative in how, how that can be used, why it's a market problem. And it seems like you're finding the, you know, investment opportunities that can really go far and really, you know, help a lot of people and, and make, you know, a good ROI for the people involved in the, in the investment. So, so cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, of course. Uh, Erica, what, um, I want to ask you one more question. Um, but this has been such a neat kind of trajectory and learning how your early days and, and everything that you built since and how it's all connected uh, for you personally and, and, you know, professionally, when, it, when it's all said and done, like when, when you kind of look back on all of this, you know, I'm curious if somewhere, someone were to ask you, you know, how you define a legacy that you left or a legacy that you shaped um, for other people through the work that you had, what, what would you want, what would you say or want someone else to say about you uh, from the work you did and, and how it impacted others? Yeah. I mean, all I really care about is helping female founders and founders of color build billion dollar companies that are creating really great technology products and solutions in the market. So as far as I'm concerned, like, I think that is what my legacy is going to be. And, you know, it's so exciting. It's like, you know, with 
you know, for example, the example of, of Solo, you know, or even Coco and Breezy, I mean, really a lot of our companies, um, you know, it's just amazing to have um, faith in somebody and belief in somebody and to, you know, invest your time and energy in supporting them get to their goals and then to see them actually succeed. I mean, it's pretty miraculous. So as far as like what drives me and, you know, what I love doing, I mean, that's kind of like the magic trick that we're able to pull off in life, which honestly like really shocks me all the time. You know, I think about, um, when we're making investments in companies, you know, there's generally like still a pretty substantial amount of risk, but you know, the way that we're looking at it is like, okay, you know, in five years, this company is going to be doing like $50 million in revenue. And you're like putting together your little financial model and, you know, you're making the investment, but then when it actually happens, you're really like, holy crap, like how did that like actually happen? <laughs> right? You're like, uh, you know, part of you feels like, oh my God, could we like do this again? But it's just, you know, it's such an interesting uh, thing to be part of, you know, to really actually help somebody build a company and like to create hundreds of jobs. Right. You know, I mean, when there's nothing better than when, one of your portfolio companies is successful and you see them creating high quality, really good jobs for people. Um, I mean, that's fabulous at like a company with a good culture. You know, I mean, that's what we've got. That is like making the world a better place. And so, you know, for me, I don't need like attention or a legacy or, you know, really care if anybody like knows who I am, but you know, just being part of, you know, bringing those things into the world. I mean, that's what makes me feel like, okay, wow. Like I really did something great, you know, with my time and my energy and my life. And that's exactly why, you know, when I was sitting there as, you know, an asset-backed security trader, trading CDOs and, you know, CMBS and all the structured product that ended up bringing down the economy, you know, I mean, my transformative moment was, you know, one day at work, I had, so as asset-backed security trader, you're trading like a lot of different types of securitized products. I think that day I had had to bid on a package, you know, a $15 million package of bonds that was securitized by people's trailer homes, right? So as a trader, I'm just sort of like, okay, cool. What's the collateral? You know, what's the payment history on this? But as I kind of thought about it at the end of the day, I was like, ugh, like I feel really icky that I was trading this product that is secured by, some, you know, the home of somebody that lives in a trailer. And, you know, the intention is that if they miss a payment, you know, which they probably will, they're going to take that person's trailer and make a lot of money off of, you know, and I just felt horrible about it, you know, and I called my mom, you know, that night, who's a physician. And I said, you know, I just, you're lucky, you know, you're a doctor, you're a pediatrician, you know, you know, you're helping people in your work. I was like, I really don't feel good about what I'm doing here. Like, I need to find some way that I can still kind of like do the quantity stuff and <laughs> be in finance, but not, you know, kind of come home at night and feel gross mm. about, you know, a transaction that I did that day. Mm. And, and it's so good that, that you were able to lean into that feeling and realize this is not right for me and like listen to that inner voice, which I think is so hard to do. 
but you did and now you the way you speak about making that impact and it it's it feels rewarding just listening to it right and for you actually doing it i'm sure is is such a surreal and, and beautiful feeling yeah well, thank you for sharing. Uh, I realize as I, you said that I never really drilled into that uh, specifically early like I normally do. So I'm glad we brought that up. We will make sure to highlight that uh, in a big way when this comes out. Uh, Erica, if, if someone wanted to get in touch with you who knew someone who uh, had a you know investment or a, a deal flow to send to you or wanted to just follow along or, or send you a note, what would be the best way to contact you? Yeah, that's great. So you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Erica Diagna Minahan. I'm also on Instagram at Erica Minahan. Our fund handle is at RainVC. Um, and you can always email me, Erica at RainVC.com. Awesome. Well, Erica, thanks so much and really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Good to see you, Brian. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.